If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos's picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Newton Group Transfer. They are here to help you if you're stuck in a timeshare. These stories from people who have these timeshares and can't get out of them, they're shocking. These timeshare companies, not all of them, but so many, they get their hooks into you and you can't give them up. You can't give them up. Or they'll, they'll do things like they charge you thousands of dollars. One girl, she got past her timeshare when her mother passed away. She gets past the timeshare, doesn't want the timeshare, doesn't use the timeshare. They tell her she can get out of it for $4,000. She has to come up with a $4,000 check. This is not right. It's unjust. And Newton Group Transfers is here to help you. If you are in a timeshare and want out or know someone who is, call 888-845-3773. That's 888-84-JESSE. Or go to timesharejesse.com, Newton Group Transfer. They will help you out. This is The Jesse Kelly Show. Deadly giant Asian hornets that can kill with one sting are heading to the UK. Don't worry. I'm getting to your history story and happy Friday, everybody. I just saw this right as I was about to come on the air and I read down the article just a little bit and I thought, wow, how apropos. You see, 
The UK has an ecosystem. Like everyone has an ecosystem. Every place has an ecosystem. They have their animal hierarchy. Lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. And it's set in place, right? This insect eats that insect. This bird eats that insect. This this animal eats that bird. Eats that snake. It's a we we know a circle of life stuff. Everybody's seen the Lion King here. And the main concern about this deadly giant Asian hornet, which apparently is two inches long. Yeah, I know, Chris. I pooped my pants when I saw. Speaking of which, well, we'll talk about that in a second. The main concern is the thing, uh, it eats bees, and it's going to kill all the UK bees. Apparently, this is going to cost millions, if not billions. I don't understand these stupid English forms of money. It's going to cost them a lot of money to combat these things and stop these hornets. Because they woke up one day and looked around and thought, oh my gosh, there's something else out there? You see, back in the year, well, we'll call it 1221, 1222, 1223 era, we are in Russia. And in Russia, I mean, Russia wasn't necessarily unified. It was kind of unified. They all considered themselves to be Russians. But they were more of a individual, like a city-state type thing. So they're kind of connected, kind of not. And part of the Russian landscape at this point in time was this group of horse archers, nomads, called the Palofsi. And the Palofsi were, like all the horse archers from the Asian steppe at the time, really, really, really tough. You couldn't contain them. You couldn't catch them. They did warfare different than everyone else. But by the grace of God, there weren't that many of them. And they were kind of disorganized. But nevertheless, as a Russian, you knew them and you knew them to be frightening. And you dang sure didn't want to wake up one morning and look up from your little Russian abode and see a group of them standing on the ridgeline about ready to swoop down onto your village. That was not something you wanted to see. So, when you're the Russians, and that's what you know about the Palofsi, and one day, there's a knock at your door. You go, who who is it? It's the Palofsi. Can we come in? It's the Palofsi. What? No, you can't come in. You're horrifying. Uh, You really need to let us in. What? All right. All right, come on in. What's uh, what's going on, scumbag? Please don't eat the sofa. And the Palofsi say, uh, we all we all have to get like a huge army together right now or we're all going to die. And now you're a little, well, this is a little concerning. The, wait, what, what kind of creature scares the Palofsi? Uh, there's... There's a gigantic group of of Mongols, you would know them as Tartars, coming, and we're all going to die if we don't get the biggest army ever. 
And that's the situation the Russians found themselves in in 2023, um, or in 1223. Now imagine, this is the ancient world. This is not the era where you have every bit of information you could ever want on a five-inch phone that fits in your pocket. This is not the internet age. This is not email. This is not phone. This is not telegraph. This is not ham radio. This is barely mail. I mean, there's mail. Don't get me wrong, but it's not like you know it today. It's just so disorganized and spread out. And imagine you have this ecosystem that is your country as a people. You know, you have your knights here, and you have your horsemen here, and you know that this on this border we have these barbarians, and you better be careful over there. And you have to. And imagine waking up one day and finding out, uh, there's a completely new species apparently on this earth. And they're going to kill us all. And that's where the Russians found themselves. You see, leading up to this, let me explain something. I eat up every single documentary or book I can possibly find on the people who come from the steppe of Asia. Think about drawing a big thing, a big line, a big wide line through the middle of, you know, Russia Obviously, Mongolia, northern China, cold, bitter, sparse grassland, some actual deserts in there, too, some mountains. It's a very rough place to live. And there were all these various peoples from different ages that lived there. The Scythians were sweet. They were the ones who used to drink out of people's skulls. (laughs) Like they would just decorate the house with skulls. Oh, yeah, please, set out the fine China. The Huns, everybody knows Attila the Hun. The Huns who absolutely swooped in like tyrants and slapped around the Romans for a long time when the Romans were studs. Same people. Horseback, archers, studs. And the stud of studs, the one... Well, who organized them all was Genghis Khan. Now, let me explain something to you. Yes, they're all tough. Yes, they can all fight. But they were mostly always barbaric and disorganized. So I want you to imagine something. I want you to picture this here. I want you to picture there's a child and the child is raised you know and the child is raised in a different way but from the moment the child is able to move the child is taught to punch really well and to dodge punches really well it's just part of its upbringing from the from the time it's three here's how you punch here's how you dodge punches here's how you punch here's how you dodge punches you would eventually have a young adult that could punch An adult that could punch and dodge really well, right? Now I want you to imagine that child at the age of 18, 19, walking into a boxing gym and saying, what's boxing? Can someone teach me how to box? Do you think somebody could turn that child into an amazing boxer? That's what you get when you have the Mongols. You see, they all could ride horses like nobody ever has in the history of mankind, except maybe the Comanches here in North America. They all could shoot bows in absurd ways. They say, I still don't know if I believe this, Chris, but they swear 
that they can shoot birds off of a horse. Like on a, when the horse is at a full gallop, they can shoot a bird out of the sky with a bow and arrow. That's so absurdly good that I just, I mean, there are some things you hear, you're like, no, that can't be true. Well, they could all do that. And along comes this man, Genghis Khan, who forms them into a big disciplined army. And they start tearing through everybody. Now, I'm not going to tell the whole tale. We'll tell a million different Mongolian tales of the crazy things they did during his reign. After his reigns, they did some sweet stuff there. But, well, they just got done crushing the Georgians. And now the Russians just get word that Genghis Khan is coming. Genghis Khan's army is coming because Genghis wasn't even with them. And now they scramble an army. But they scramble 80,000. Genghis only has 20. Shouldn't be a problem, right? Yeah. The Jesse Kelly Show. Food for your brain. Brain not included. The Mongols had sent 20,000 men under the great General Subadai, one of the great generals of all time. They sent 20,000 men up into Georgia, Russia, and they were not there to conquer, unlike the rest of the Mongol army. They were just there to check things out and steal some stuff, kill a bunch of people. And take off back home. They weren't even there to conquer. And, of course, being there just to check things out for Mongols means sacking entire cities. And the best thing I can explain about them, the best way I can explain this is, there are several people throughout history, most of the armies and commanders and things throughout history, that if you were to magically teleport them today, into the command center of a general. They would be so overwhelmed with the way warfare, the advanced way warfare is conducted today, they would probably, the mind would melt. It would be too much for them. Just the technology, everything. Wait, there are ships? There are planes? Just regular infantry? Wait, we have what? We have smoke rounds? We have, there are flares? I don't understand. It would be too much. I had a buddy tell me one time he was a Mongol freak. And he said, I'm telling you right now, you could take the great generals from the Mongols. You could teleport them into a United States military command center. And in very, very short order, they would understand what's going on and would actually be able to contribute. You remember that giant Asian hornet? These people were simply more advanced in warfare than the rest of the earth. They did things a different way. Remember I said they just got done beating the Georgians? Just a brief note on that. They faced down a huge army of Georgians 
and cumans. Cumans are these steppe people. Instead of facing down the whole army, which would be the manly, honorable thing to do. Well, they didn't, they didn't obey rules like that, and we'll get to that in just a second. They just sent some buddies over to the cumans and said, hey, man, we're all friends. Here's a bunch of loot and money we stole. Y'all just take off. And the Cubans were like, yeah, good call. We're out of here. Mongols wake up the next morning. Cubans took their loot and took off. And the enemy army was all of a sudden cut in half and the Mongols slaughtered them. Oh, and then when they got done slaughtering them, you remember when I told you they don't care about honor or things like that? They then chased down the Cubans they just paid off and killed them to the last man and took all their money back. A different people. And now they're coming towards the Russians. And the Russians send 80,000 people to the Mongols. Now, this is the part of the story, well, one of several parts, that fascinates me. You see, they specialized in the fake retreat in, quote, running away. When they weren't really running away. They were huge believers in taking advantage of your overconfidence. They were huge believers in choosing their battlefield that they wanted. As any intelligent general would tell you to do. No, you don't want to fight them here. That would be good for them and bad for us. We need to find a way to get them here. Well. That's exactly what they did. You see, when you're 20,000 Mongols and you're facing an army of 80,000 knights and cavalry and everything else, you've got to figure out a way to, well, make things a little bit more advantageous to you. So what did they do? They left some men behind just to die. Now, it should be noted, as far as if you have to talk good about the Mongols, they were not big on that, on killing their own men. In fact, they were emphatic about it. When something was extremely dangerous... They would send slaves and people they captured to go do it. They'd force them to do it. Genghis Khan did not want his own men to die. They were emphatic about it. But this time, they pointed to their own men. The numbers vary. And they said, go fight to the last man. And because they were Mongols, no hesitation. They went and sent some tiny little force that would just slow the Russians down and fought to the last man. Now, remember when I told you they had a retreat, a fake retreat strategy. Would I, I need to explain this. I don't mean they would ride up on a horse and just turn around and ride the other direction like you see in the movies. They had entire units that were trained basically like professional actors to act scared and run the other way. They took fake retreating very, very, very seriously. And what does a... Russian, you know, European knight do at this time? Well, for God and country, for honor, let us pursue these these pesky barbarians from the steppe. And pursue they did. For nine days. Some people say 12 days. Now picture this. You're an army of 80,000 people in armor. People in spears, do you have any idea how heavy that is? Do you have any idea how slow you're going compared with the entirely mounted army you're chasing? 
You have any idea how tired you'll be after two or three days of walking in that kind of gear? You have any idea how fresh they'll be? Because each Mongol had two, three, four, five horses. When one horse would get tired, they just switch him out. So the Mongols are not tired. They ride all day long. They, they teach them to ride horseback at the age of three in their culture. I'm not exaggerating. Three. Oh, on top of this, remember when I said the Mongols were professionals? They would take herds of sheep. You know, sheep are just slow and it's not, not going to move like a Mongol on horseback. And they would leave them behind for the Russian army to scoop up so they could pretend as if they're fleeing. Extremely scared. Look how scared they are. They're leaving behind their own food. Slowing down the Russians even more. Putting more distance between the Mongolians and the Russians. Until at the end of that nine-day pursuit from the Mongolians who were retreating, but not really. The Russians come down into a valley by the Kalka River, and now they're in very serious trouble because this is exactly where the Mongols were leading them the entire time. Remember that Russian army of 80,000 and the Mongolian army of 20? Well, how do you adjust that to your advantage? You spread them out. You see that 80,000-man Russian army that had just marched for nine days, exhausted, was now 50 miles long. So you don't have 80,000 men at the battlefield. And you have a line of Mongolian horsemen waiting there. Oh, and did I mention they would understand modern-day tactics? They put pitch, which is that old flammable stuff they used to use, they put pitch in various places all over the valley and lit it all on fire when the Russians got there, filling the entire place with smoke so the Mongols knew where they were going and the Russians were now confused. And now it got ugly. The Mongols, unsurprisingly, smashed into the opening, into the beginning of a long column, They freaked out, the Russians did, turned around, and started running away. Well, that's when everybody gets slaughtered in ancient warfare, when you turn around and run the other direction, because then everyone turns around and starts running, and now you have 80,000 exhausted men in armor running the opposite direction, being run down by the greatest horsemen the world has ever seen. You have a pretty good idea how this day is going to go? Yeah, if you thought that that was bad... It's actually about to get worse for some of them. So you now you got 80,000 Russians turning around, running the other direction. The Mongols are doing what Mongols do and mopping them up like a wet cleanup on the floor. And a very brave dude, the prince, they call him the prince of Kiev. He has some longer name, but I can't say the word, so I'm not going to say it. He decides he's going to try to rally the troops and make some kind of a defense so they don't lose the entire army of Russia. So he circles the wagons, quite literally, and f- makes this, like, ad hoc fort 
it's always knights in there. You know, you don't want to be attacking a fort with knights in it. But he makes a brave stand as all these other troops are fleeing all around him. Well, remember when I said the Mongols didn't don't care about European versions of honor and things like that. So they were just all, well, have fun in your fort. We're just going to ride around it. <laughs> they just flat out were like, oh, well, that's a nice fort you have there. See ya. They just kept riding around it and killing everyone who wasn't in the fort. Then they came back and killed everyone in the fort too. Finally, the, the big cheese, the king who had retreated clear back to his camp, the Mongols found where that was. They got there and killed all those people too. Except for the king, I should note the fact that it was part of Mongol culture, which is really weird, by the way. Part of Mongol culture was they did not shed the blood of royalty, which never really worked out that well for royalty because they just found other horrific ways to kill them that weren't bloody. One guy, he was actually a fellow Mongol. This is back when Genghis Khan was taking over everything and unifying everything. One guy, because he was royal blood and they couldn't couldn't just chop his head off, which is not that bad of a way to go, you know, especially if they get you in one swipe. Instead, they got a group of soldiers around him and broke his back. That's, can we go with the blood option? That doesn't sound very nice at all. So the, the big cheese, he gets locked in a box and suffocated to death. The other Mongols, well, the the victorious Mongols, I should say, they took the other royalty, the other leaders of this army they had just slaughtered, and they tied them together on the ground, side by side. They then placed a gigantic platform on top of them, a big wooden platform, and set up a big banquet table on top of it, and they had their victory banquet where they all sat down for a lovely Mongolian meal, got good and drunk, and ate dinner while they slowly suffocated everybody tied together underneath the platform. Why did they do all this? Why did... 80,000 Russians have to die. Why did the Russian nobility have to be suffocated to death, tied underneath a wooden platform? Pride. You see, the one part of the story I left out was, you remember when those Palofsi back at the very beginning were telling the Russians the Mongols were coming? Did you know that the Mongols actually didn't even want to have this battle. They sent emissaries to the Russians. They were, they were not all barbarians. Like I said, the Mongols were very smart. They sent emissaries to the Russians, and they said, hey, uh, we actually have no quarrel with you at all. We're not even here to conquer you or anything like that. Now, we do have a big issue with the Palofsi guys, so just go ahead and kick them out. And y'all do what you do. We're not here to fight you. And they took the Mongolian envoys, the emissaries, and they killed them. That is the biggest deal of big deals back in the ancient times. Envoys were special. They were sacred. 
It was the only way you could communicate between armies, so you never touched them. And any time you did, it was considered the greatest insult in the world. I could I could do an entire show on the horrible things that happened to people who touched the Mos, uh, the Mongol envoys. You just didn't do it. It would be it would be akin today to the United States of America taking a uh, taking a Delta Force group down to the Chinese ambassador's home this morning, right after breakfast, and firing a bullet into his head. What do you think China's response to that would be? Yeah, it, it, it would be that. It's that kind of a big deal. Pride gets you every single time. The truth of the matter is, and I'm not going to do yet another show on coronavirus. I am not. I just refuse to do it. It's Friday. You've been beaten to death with it for a month now. We got all week on this stuff. We got another week next week. We got this saga continues, you know. I'll talk about it some today, but not a bunch. What bothers me is pride. I'm as guilty of it as you are. It has so many times in my life cost me in the same ways it's cost you. We had bad models. There's not another way to put that. We had bad models. And don't give me this revisionist history. We had bad models. Two to four million Americans are going to die unless we, unless, we, unless we lock everything down right now. And then one or 200,000 Americans are going to die. Okay, we have new data. It's actually going to be 90,000. Whoa, we have new updated data. It's going to be 80,000. Hey, look at that. It's down to 70. Oh, did I say 70? It's actually down to 60. And down and down and down and down the model predictions go. I'm not going to sit here and beat up all the reasons why I don't need to. And you know what you don't need to do if you were one of those people out there? We have to shut down America, the models. Have you seen the models? Ah. We don't have to do this thing where I point out everything that was wrong with the models and you as a defender of the models sit and tell me, well, you have to understand that that's all we knew at the time. And I, 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 all you have to do is say the three easiest words in the English language, and then we can all move on. That's all the federal government has to do. It's all these governors have to do. It's all these idiot mayors have to do. It's all these panic-peddling political pundits. All you have to do right now, today, and we can get things turned around is stand up and say, I was wrong. You don't have to be full of pride. What we're seeing right now, I just saw another line at a food bank Miles and miles long. It's happening across America. People are going without food. Because collectively, we can't just stand up and say, I was wrong. You don't have to do this thing where my reputation is on the line and we can't admit fault. Dude, we can all see it. Anyone with eyes can see it. Yes, 15,000 people are dead. It's the worst freaking thing in the world. Say a prayer for every one of them. No, 
the devastation we're doing to our economy is not anywhere close to being worth 15,000 lives. It is not. That sounds harsh. It sounds awful. That's also how every nation in the history of mankind has conducted their business. You have to weigh cost-benefit. You do not contract the United States economy by 10, 15, 20% for anything but the Black Plague. And you know what? You don't even want to then. And this ain't that. And the only reason we're still continuing this insanity out there is nobody has the self-confidence to stand up and say, I was wrong. I was wrong. Time to start saying it. Or we're going to find ourselves underneath the platform. Is he smarter than everyone? Who knows? Does he think so? Yeah. The Jesse Kelly Show. Email. Jesse. I'm a fire I'm a firefighter at a small two-station 20-man fire department in blank I'm not going to tell you where. I tore my meniscus on the job a few months ago. About that time, about the time I was ready to be released to go back to work, the coronavirus pandemic ramped up. I have to have some sort of impairment rating before I can get released. The week that I was supposed to have this done, the city issued a shelter in place order. That was almost a month ago. Luckily, I am getting workman's comp, but it isn't a full check. I also work part-time at another fire department for money that we count on. So that is just the money we aren't getting now. My wife is a hairdresser, and her salon has been shut down for a month also. She just got her first unemployment check, which is about a quarter of her average paycheck. We also have twin 18-year-old boys who both lost their jobs their senior year. I know people have it a lot worse than I do, but I just thought I would share. My email inbox, and you're all welcome to email me, jesse at jessekellyshow.com. That's jesse at jessekellyshow.com. Again, I cannot respond to them all. I will read them all. My email inbox has been full of these stories, and it's awful. Or you can call. You're welcome to call right now, 877-377-4373. 877-377-4373. It's just, it's awful to see it. It's awful to see it when the projections were wrong. It's a deadly disease. It's not as bad as we were led to believe. We don't have to murder the economy for it. Why is that hard to say? Pride. You and you know what I'm talking about, don't you? How many times have you made that mistake in your life? <sighs> Look, 
I, I got a long count myself. You know what it is. You walk home, or walk home. Hopefully you're not walking home, but get home from work. Friday night, it's been a long work week. Whew. Looking forward to a night with the wife. Y'all have dinner planned. You're going to go out. Got a babysitter for the kids. We can go out and get some Mexican food tonight. Get our queso on. It's going to be a good night. It's been a long week, right? Walk in the door, long week. Maybe catch the wife in a bad moment. Maybe she caught you in one and she says, honey, you forgot to take out the trash this morning. And you got two choices to make there. And how many times have you made the wrong one? I'll tell you how many times I have. You can obviously take that moment and say, oh, crap, baby. My bad. Shoot, I'll get it right now. And she wouldn't be mad anymore. You need to swoop up your bride. Go have a margarita or two. Have a real nice night. Maybe even a real nice finish to the night. Or you can say, well, is there something wrong with your fingers? I've been at work all day. Then how's the rest of your night? You got the same night then? No, then you're fighting. Then the night's ruined. Then you got hours and hours and hours of trouble on your hands because of pride. Don't have too much pride to step up and say I was wrong, especially when so, so much of the country is bleeding right now. We are bleeding. You can stand up and say, hey, man, okay, we we overestimated. Fine. Maybe you could even justify that. Now, look, we didn't know. We were scared. We got, we, look, we got, we, we got more stuff than we need right now, and we do, apparently. We got more stuff than we need. We're good. Let's, let's get it rolling. But you have a whole group of people who can't just stand up and say I was wrong, and it's driving me nuts. Chris, you know what else is driving me nuts? Crawfish boils and the lack of them. You don't even know what I'm talking about. Do All right, let me explain this for the uninitiated. Many of you have never eaten crawfish before. Obviously, I'm hoping you can picture what a crawfish is. You with me? Stay with me. Just picture a lobster and shrink that down about 20 times. (laughs) A crawfish is about the length of your finger. It's a little mini lobster. You do not eat, well, at least I don't eat the head. You tear the tail off of it, and you suck the meat out of it. Some people peel them completely. I do not. You break off the tail, suck the meat out of it. It's actually called sucking heads. Chris, what is wrong with you? Why can't we even have conversations on the show with it without you being immature? It's called sucking heads. That's, that's what it's called in the South when you're eating crawfish. And as such, it just so happens to turn out I live in a neighborhood with a bunch of people from Louisiana. Now, let me explain something to you about Louisiana people. One, they get a bad rap because they can't talk at all. But they are some of the most wonderful people I've ever been around. And every state has its own culture. Every state has its own thing. Hang on. I'll explain what a crawfish boil is. Hang on.
take food and partying more seriously than you take. And I should explain something when I'm talking about partying. I'm not talking about your college buddy, Wally, who specialized in some stupid gigantic fruit punch bowl that you put out in the middle of the room to get everybody good and drunk when you were young and stupid. No, when I say partying, I mean you show up at a Louisiana person's house for a party, a neighborhood party, a football team party, a whatever it may be. They have, like, themed posters. They'll have party favors to hand out. They take their partying deadly serious over there. And I don't just mean, I don't just mean the kids either. I don't just mean, like, college kids. I was doing this, um, these videos. They were called, uh, shoot, what do we call them? Heritage, Heritage Films, I believe they were called. And I'll tell you what, I'll explain in a second. Jesse Kelly Show. This is the Jesse Kelly Show. Now, Let me backtrack a little bit. Remember when I told you I've done a million different things? I've lived all over. I've done a million different things. I uh, had a bit of an unorthodox path, you would say, to the microphone, Chris, (laughs) to say the least. And you remember when I quit my job out of the blue as the RV sales manager. Shut up, Chris. It worked out. It was a little risky at the time. Well, I quit my job as the RV sales manager to try to pursue a career in media, which worked out by the grace of God. But I needed some money coming in. I do have a wife and kids and a mortgage and, you know, all the stuff you got. I got it. So one of my buddies, his his name is Chance McLean. He does these films. They're called heritage films. And I won't belabor the point, but the Heritage films are really, really cool. It's essentially a documentary about someone you love's life for a reasonable price. Like you would go out and, hey, Jesse, I want to buy a Heritage film for my grandpa, for my dad, for, for, for something. It was actually really sad. We ended up doing a lot of them of people who were dying young and wanted to leave something for their kids, which was rough, man. It was rough. But they were really cool for the most part. You were talking to these old World War II veterans. You, you want to know how, how I know half this history stuff? It was that. Talk to some lady who lived through the Great Depression in the Dust Bowl. Get this, Chris. Here's a little Dust Bowl tidbit for you. The Dust Bowl was so bad. She lived in a town, and she lived in an apartment in one of the buildings in town. And she worked, I think, two or three blocks away. I forget what it was. And the Dust Bowl was so blinding and bad. 
how she got home every day is she had memorized the steps. She would step off the curb, off the sidewalk, off the curb of the sidewalk onto the street, and would touch the side of her foot to the curb and would trace her foot along the curb for three blocks to get home so she would know she was home. Isn't that wild? Isn't that wild? I've been in a dust storm like that in Iraq. I'll tell you about that sometime. So I start doing these films, and I have to go do this Louisiana couple's house. Now, remember when I told you it's not just the kids that take their partying seriously? I walk into this Louisiana couple's home, and it's this lovely home. I mean, it's always so colorful. It's just a different culture. I love it. I love Louisiana. I love the people. I love, I love the food. That's probably a big part of it. And we go out back because they want to film everything out back. And they have what can only be described as essentially a party central setup for crawfish. This is built into their home. I don't mean they threw up like a little, little table they bought for five bucks at Walmart. They have built-in banquet tables. They have an industrial-sized operation for crawfish boils. And, I mean, they even have, like, a sink. You know those uh, you know those industrial-length sinks that are, like, five, six feet long with several faucets that you'd see in a bathroom where everybody washes their hands at some big bar or something? Yeah, they had one of those installed in their backyard. And, I mean, in this entire area. And, essentially, these Louisiana people do... These amazing crawfish boils. And I don't even know everything that goes into it. So don't call and scream at me if I miss one of the ingredients. I understand how seriously you people take it. 877-377-4373, by the way. 877-377-4373. Oh, 877-377-4373. Well, we do this in my neighborhood a little bit less seriously. But, I mean, these guys are... Look... They're out there to make crawfish, and they get everybody together in the neighborhood, and everyone, you know, bring over a six-pack of beer. All the kids get together in the neighborhood, squirt guns, bikes, footballs, you name it, all American stuff, and you gather up in somebody's driveway, and these Louisiana guys, they start making crawfish, and they make them in these gigantic, I mean, geez, it's got to be three or four-gallon cauldrons. And there's crawfish in there and all kinds of spices in there. And they have these sausages that they chop up. I'm sure there's a ton of other stuff in there I don't even know about. But it is the best thing you've ever freaking eaten in your life. But the problem, the only problem with the crawfish boil is, Chris, you can't go in hungry. Now, you would think with a feast like that you want to go in hungry. But it's so much work to actually get the crawfish out, and get enough food in your belly to fill you up, you don't want to go in hungry, which leads me to my last thing on the crawfish boil. I don't even know how I got sidetracked with this. You know I'm a simple dude. Barely white trash. I genuinely have simple tastes. I just don't... I mean, look, I love a good, nice steak at a steakhouse as much as the next man. I just have simple tastes. I don't... If you were to give me $10 million bucks tomorrow, I wouldn't buy a boat. Honestly, I wouldn't move out of my house. I don't think I'd trade in my pickup truck. I'm sure I'd fly first class everywhere, probably eat out a little more. But I, won't, I don't have this laundry list of 
things that I want. I like experiences. I like going places and seeing things. I just don't have, I just, I'm not that guy. I don't want a jet ski. I understand a lot of you are. It's not me. I would pay somebody to peel my crawfish for me. Is that absurd? Is that way over the top? Does that sound like King Louie or something? It's not, right? I would pay somebody to peel my crawfish for me. That would be epic. That'd be epic. All right. Remember I teased yesterday, no big deal, just doing a little radio stuff. I teased yesterday that maybe we need to revisit one of the rights that's enshrined in the Constitution. And, of course, I'm being tongue-in-cheek. You can't revisit rights that are in there. But if we had to do it over again, well, let me read this quote from William Tecumseh Sherman. Quote, I hate newspaper men. They come into the camp and pick up their camp rumors and print them as facts. I regard them as spies, which in truth, they are. Where is he wrong? I saw these two headlines and it just, it drove the point home for me. Pence bars top health experts, Fauci and Burks, from appearing on CNN. Pence basically said, no, no more CNN. And NBC faces mass backlash after touting China's coronavirus numbers in contrast with the United States. If you're the communist Chinese government, which we know exists, what does CNN do, especially during this pandemic? What do they do that you would have them do differently? Honestly, I want to know. Does anyone have an answer to that question? When does the line get drawn, Chris, between what is a basic freedom and what is traitorous? What am I allowed to do? Well, let's forget about the press. Set this aside for a second. What am I allowed to do as a citizen under freedom of speech, freedom of assembly? Am I allowed, if I wanted to, to speak openly about overthrowing the U.S. government and having huge meetings in the center of town where we lay out specifically, okay, well, here's how we're going to march on Congress, and we'll kidnap these congressmen, and and then we'll march on the white. Am I allowed to have that conversation? Of course not, right? You can't. You can hints around at things, but I'm talking serious plans. All right, well, we've got these 30 people over here. What you're going to do is block up. I'd have cuffs on in five seconds. Yes, you have freedom. You don't have the freedom to actively try to take down the United States of America, do you? I know press freedom's sacred. I'm not saying we don't need it. Maybe we just went a little too far with it. You're listening to The Jesse Kelly Show. You're welcome.
Russia case footnotes to be declassified, exposing FBI concerned about steel disinformation. We all forgot about that, didn't we? Isn't, isn't that so weird, Chris, how we all forgot about that? Look, I'm just as guilty. I'm not pointing fingers at you. I'm just as guilty. We've allowed, obviously, there's a pandemic and there's an economic downturn. And I mean, everything sucks. <laughs> it's just nuts. We got to find ways to laugh. And we all just kind of stop thinking about and stop talking about the fact that um, the the federal law enforcement arm under President Barack Obama opened up what appears to be an illegal investigation into the president's opponent in an election, which would... I mean, really, let's, let's just be honest about this. We don't have to freak out, but that's the biggest scandal in United States political history by a mile. I understand it's not going to get covered because he's St. Obama and it's St. Comey and all these people have, you know, they're all protected by the good old boy network, but let's, let's just be frank. When you have the law enforcement arm of the federal government going after a political candidate, Illegally, and by all accounts, I mean, look, we have, you have the same, you have the same text mess, text messages I have from the FBI agents. By all accounts, updating the President Obama all the way. Quote: POTUS wants to know everything. That's a text exchange between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page. That we all we all are grasping how big that is, right? That's bigger than. Anything. Because if you have a politicized law enforcement arm of the federal government, that is. Man, that's scary, isn't it? I mean, that takes it to a new. I I would be saying the same thing if it was under a Republican that investigated a Democrat. No, 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 no. You can't get political. You cannot get political. If Donald Trump. If the FBI under Donald Trump used false information, knowing, let me rephrase, knowingly used false information to go get a warrant to investigate Joe Biden. I don't mean talking about it back and forth in the press. If his FBI used totally crap information to go get a warrant to investigate and spy on Joe Biden, uh, I would want him thrown out of office and thrown in jail. You can't do that. When you're in the government, especially when you're the chief executive of it, the the various branches of government are not your personal political playthings that you get to sick on your political opponents. And as the more as more facts come out of all this steel dossier stuff, uh, it's it's terrifying. Did you did you hear Barr? Listen to Barr. I think what happened to him was one of the greatest travesties in American history. Without any basis, uh, they uh, started this investigation of his campaign. Uh, And even uh, more concerning, actually, is what happened after the campaign, a whole pattern of events while he was president. Uh, So I, uh, to sabotage the presidency, and uh, I I think that, uh, or at least had the effect of sabotaging the presidency. 
That's the Attorney General of the United States of America. I mean, that is some heavy, heavy accusations. Here's the article. The facts inside our reporter's notebook. This is from justthenews.com. U.S. intelligence has decided to declassify several redacted footnotes from a recent Justice Department report that will expose more problems with the FBI's investigation into President Trump's campaign, including that agents possessed evidence their main informant may have been victim of Russian disinformation, just the news has learned. The previously redacted footnotes are likely to raise concerns that the FBI ignored flashing red warning signals about the informant Christopher Steele and gave a false picture in briefing materials supplied to Congress. The declassified sections from Inspector General Michael Horowitz's December review of FBI FISA abuse could be made available to key Senate and House committees as early as the end of this week, according to people familiar with the effort. The unredacted footnotes are expected to provide new data points in a timeline showing when the FBI learned or should have suspected that its key evidence suggesting Trump was colluding with Russia was erroneous and how high up those concerns were known, the sources said. Oh, let's just be clear about something real fast. How high up those concerns were known. I want you right now. You don't have to write it down, but in that mind of yours, I want you to make a mental note of that exact phrase right there and how high up those concerns were known. How high up do you think the concerns were known when an investigation was opened up to spy on the billionaire Republican nominee for President of the United States of America? Come on, people. What's that old saying? Don't pee down my back and tell me it's raining. You didn't open up an investigation to wiretap the campaign of Donald Trump for president without the freaking director of the FBI and the president himself giving you the okay. And anybody... Who tells you otherwise during this process is either an idiot or they're lying to you. Oh, they all knew. How's it work in your house? Do you have to call the wife and let her know you're buying a pack of gum? Of course not. Do you have to call the wife and tell her you just sold the house and you're moving to Omaha, Nebraska? Yeah, probably. That's the biggest thing in the world. They all knew. And the reason I'm pointing this out now is because, you know, I'm a bit of a cynic. Some would say a realist. Some would simply say a jerk. I'm a bit of a cynic, and I'm worried about this. Because you remember Andy McCabe, who got let off without A.G. Barr pressing charges? I understand A.G. Barr was talking tough just then. But we had the... uh, Basically, the number two man at the Federal Bureau of Investigation lying to Congress and, under oath and lying to the FBI. And A.G. Barr looked at his, all his crimes and said, you know what? Don't worry about it. Go home. And we all know how this works, right? How's it work at your job? What's that saying? Poop rolls downhill. And how high up those concerns were known is going to be the buzzword, the defense of everybody involved in this. You know it, and I know it. Some lowly idiot 
is going to get stuck holding the bag for this whole thing. And James Comey is going to be off doing another book tour. Do you know that Barack Obama, the former president of the United States of America, who very likely had the FBI investigating his political opponent while he was president and very likely signed off on the investigation, has yet to be asked by a single person in the United States media what he knew and when he knew it? Is that not the most astounding thing you've ever heard in your life? Not one person. To this day, has asked Barack Obama, uh, so did did you actually know? Because they say you knew about this. Stunning. We are going to talk with one of the funniest, sharpest dudes I know. Hang on one second. If you have any questions for me, 877 877-377-4373. 877-377-4373. One of my favorite people in politics, (laughs) one of the funniest people in politics, Michael Malice is the author of the book, The New Right, which I would recommend for you because he's right about all that, and host of Your Welcome, and of course, Your is spelled incorrectly. Michael, before we get to coronavirus economy crap that everyone's sick to death about and everything sucks right now, the Steele investigation, the FISA investigation... I am a darkly cynical person by nature. I think nobody of any consequence is going to get held to account for this at all. Tell me I'm wrong. Oh, I, I mean, I can lie to you, baby, if that's what you want. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I can't remember the last time. When's the last time someone in Washington has been of either party has been held accountable? I, I can't think of a single, I guess, Michael Cohen, technically, but he wasn't really of Washington um, and people like that, Manafort. But this doesn't happen. They protect their own. And I think, thankfully, uh, more people on both sides of both political parties are starting to understand this. Why can you explain at all how that happens? Do they all have a judge in their pocket? Do they all do they just afford better lawyers? Is it just mutually oh, I, agreed upon that we're not going to prosecute each other? How? I think if you swim in the same circles and go and have no people in common and are one degree removed, it's a lot easier to believe that this person made a mistake or you know what because they'll have a lawyer. And their lawyer's job will be to present a somewhat plausible explanation for why the situation is what it is. And when you are peers in the same peer group as someone, you're going to tend to believe that, like, you know, they're a lot like me. So this is probably true. That's what I would guess. I mean, if you think about it, I've made this point in my book. Hillary Clinton will always have a lot more in common with George W. Bush than she will with a janitor who, unlike her, voted Democrat all his life. So when you look at things like that and, you you know, you see like the darkest cases with Epstein and ABC News, you realize, oh, it's us versus them, not really Republican versus Democrat so much. Michael, I'm worried about when all this is done, when the economic destruction's done, when the pandemic's gone. I'm worried about what we're going to be left with. And this is what I mean by that. Not only the obvious devastation economically, 
not only the dead people, which we already have, what, 15,000, 16,000. I'm worried about how willing Americans have been to just cough up everything they know to be right. Everything We have cops arresting a dad for playing softball in the park with his daughter. Nobody bats an eye. I have my own neighbors reporting people in the public park walking. I This uh, has revealed something that I didn't know was there, man. Uh, well, it's, I'll, I'll, I'm going to make it sound even worse. Uh, oh, one gosh. of the things that the early progressives loved about World War One is they said, look, now we have an excuse to have a dress rehearsal for what a nation under federal centralization would look like. And they, it was true. I mean, regardless of what you thought about World War One, this is a consequence of what happened. You had extreme centralization, extreme taxation, extreme social control to a level which had never been imagined before on American soil, not even during the Civil War. So that when you had the Great Depression and FDR's New Deal, people remembered, hey, we've been through this before. We got through it. It sucked. But we know what it looks like. It's a lot easier to take that pill the second time. So these huge infringements, and let's assume for the sake of argument that they're all necessary and life-saving on our civil liberties and our freedoms, and you know the government having just you know, all these kind of mandates, you know, in five years, 10 years, if someone says we need to do this for global warming, they will have the true argument that we did this before and we know what it's like and we got through it. Mm. Mm. That's I, I did a show on this the other day of that was my concern is what we've done is lay out the blueprint. Not only have we laid it out for China, we've shown them what we'll do if a pandemic breaks out. We have laid out the blueprint from here to the end of time. Any pandemic, up, oh, everybody go home and hide under your bed for two months. And that's what worries me the most, that this is going to be universal. I mean, this is a bad, it's a bad disease. It's not the flu. I, I, contrary to what people are saying, it is a bad disease, but I think these lockdowns have been absurd. Obviously, in places like New York City, pretty necessary. Why is Oklahoma locking down? Why is Western Texas locking down? That's idiotic. Do you disagree? Oh no, I, 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 I my understanding is yeah, it's very, very different vector spreading in cities than where there's little um, a geographic proximity to one another. Uh, but do you want some good news? Yes. Instead of just us being Debbie Downers this morning. Yes. I don't think we have ever seen. Uh, an ex- to such an extent of the American people being uh, having their eyes uh, opened to the nature of the corporate press and how depraved and uh, malevolent they truly are. Because if you look at how Gavin Newsom, very lefty governor of a very left-wing state, California, Cuomo, hardcore partisan of New York State, which is a very, very democratic state historically, and so on and so forth. They've been singing Trump's phrases. Prime Minister Conte of of, uh, Italy, who's there with the Social Democrats, singing Trump's praises unprompted. And when you compare that to how the media is behaving and the brazen lies that they're spreading about the president in a situation where partisanship does not apply. We want people to live regardless of what political party they are. That's when people are realizing, oh, the enemy isn't necessarily, you know, the Republicans or the Democrats. It's the corporate press, and they don't care if we live or die. They're just there to maintain their hold on power. So, and the, the only reason they have their hold on power is because people believe that they are acting in good faith and at least are trying to tell the truth. So that is one slight silver lining 
um, in this situation. No, it is a silver lining. Look, that's not even slight. I, I've I've said from the beginning of this thing, the American people need to be a lot, a lot less trusting of everybody, of people you see on TV, of politicians, yeah. of everybody. That's how you get yourself in a pickle like this. How did the corporate press get like this? Because this is what happens. They're so disgusting, as you just laid out, that people will create entire conspiracy theories in their mind that frankly sound plausible. You know, the Russians invaded the whole thing. But how did they get like this? Is it just they're all pulling the cart in the same direction and they end up saying the same things? Well, I know because a guy like this has been going on for a hundred years. Thanks to social media, you can expose their tricks in real time. Uh, if you have, let's suppose, a hundred people, and they all go to the same clown college, all those clowns for the rest of their lives will know how to do the same routines. So this all starts at the universities. Uh, the goal of the universities for over a hundred years has been to train the future elites of this country into being the ideological shock troops for the progressive militia. So we're going, people used to think it was Washington's the problem. Then they realized, wait a minute, I, I had a poll on my Twitter. I said, who would you rather have as the Supreme Court if you had to? Nine random Democratic senators or nine random New York Times reporters? And the senders won, which is very telling and very gratifying that people are realizing, oh, it's much worse at places like the Times, because these are the, I call them jihadis without testosterone. These are the people <laughs> who have the real radical ideas, and in many ways, the, the politicians have to follow suit for what the press says, because if, I said this when I was on the Rubin Report. If I'm a Democratic politician and my constituents have been hearing for four years, Russia, 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 how am I supposed to look them in the face and say, I think Trump's a president, terrible president, but I don't think he should be impeached. I don't have that space because of the media. So this understanding of the and, – and again, Walter Durante is a great example of this. He was a Times reporter, won a Pulitzer. He covered up uh, Stalin's genocide of Ukraine, saying there's no famine. He said this explicitly. And again, there's not been a change in my view since then. We all learn about yellow journalism in school. You know, remember the main um, William Randolph Hearst starting the Spanish-American War. And then at some point, we're supposed to pretend the press became objective. No, no, that's the lie. It's been the same song for 100 years, but now we have eyeglasses on to realize, oh, these people are the real villains. Honestly, dude is one of the sharpest people out there. And now you know what I'm talking about. Go check out his show. You're right. It's Y-O-U-R. <laughs> Michael Malice. Thank you, my friend. It was killer. Thanks, Jesse. Talk. Dude is sharp, Chris. Reminds me of me. All right. We need to talk about the sea urchin in my foot. I'll explain in a second. The Jesse Kelly Show. My foot hurts, man. What, Chris? It does. 877-377-4373. And he, <laughs> I think it's the sea urchin again. And I can hear what you're saying. What are you talking about sea urchin again? Allow me to explain. 
This was a saga that went on a long time ago. Some of you will know this story. But I know this may be shocking to some of you, but occasionally in my youth, I used poor judgment. And this is one of those occasions. A sea urchin, in case you uh, have been asleep your whole life, is that I think they're always black. Maybe they're not always black. I think they could be orange or red, too. A sea urchin is a, a ball with needles coming out of it. That's what you need to know. They're in the ocean. They're on coral reefs. These needles coming out of the sea urchin not only contain a stinging poison, they break off inside of you like a porcupine, only they're even more brittle than that. Well, I was in the Marine Corps. And when you're in the Marine Corps, depending on where you are, you will take deployments to various places. A deployment is simply your whole unit packs up all your stuff. You go overseas. This is not a combat deployment, not that kind of deployment. And you go to, you know, some people will be on a ship for six months and they'll stop in various ports, chase the women around, drink all the beer, get in trouble, get back on the ship and go to the next port and do the same. Of course, you train somewhere alone there too. Well, we went to Okinawa for six months. And while you're in Okinawa, there's not a ton to do. Don't get me wrong. I liked it. It was tropical. For the only time in my entire four years in the Marine Corps, I was actually by the ocean. There were beaches, which, of course, the Marines found a way to make miserable by making us run on them and everything else. But still, there were beaches and palm trees, and we got hurricanes all the time, big ones. They were called typhoons over there, which I don't understand why you have to call it something different. But it was was wild. And on the weekends, because you're not in America, you're in a foreign country, and I did not blah. Well, there's not a ton to do. So we had horseshoe pits. We had a big horseshoe pit down on the beach. Not the end of the world, right? A little barbecue pit so we'd all throw in what money we had, which admittedly was not much. We'd get a bunch of charcoal, get a bunch of meats, chips. You know the deal. Meats, chips, dips, beer. Go down, throw horseshoes for a while. Get a tan. Life. Standard life. During one of these Long horseshoe events. I'm looking out at the ocean. It's getting awfully hot, as it tends to do in the tropical parts of the world. And I say to myself, I want to go have a dip in the ocean. I love the ocean. Now, let me clarify. I know a lot of people are terrified of the ocean. I did not realize just how many people were scared of it until I started taking whenever we'd go somewhere. I'd take these, you know, various snorkel tours or something like that, and there would be people who just would not go in the water. I found that to be bizarre. They would not go in the water. I've seen Jaws one too many times, and it can be a dangerous place. I get that. I just grew up in the water. I love it. So I go take a dip in the ocean, and I'm swimming around out there, and I was unfamiliar with this part of the water because I'd never been in there yet. Underneath me is a coral reef. At one point, like an idiot, because you're never supposed to touch the coral reef, you can actually kill it, so I try not to do that. I try to be a good steward of my environment, even though that climate change nonsense is a bunch of crap. I still don't, I don't litter. I don't, 
you know, throw a can of soda in the ditch somewhere. I just don't do it. We want to be good stewards of the earth God gave us. So a wave hit me wrong. For some reason, I misjudged the depth. I put my foot down on the coral. And, mm, ouch, what the? It hurt. And I did not think anything of it. I just thought to myself, gosh, that's a sharp piece of coral. Which coral can be very sharp? You can cut yourself on it, and I have by accident several times. If the waves slam you up against it, you can get a nasty little cut on it, and that's all I thought it was. Not the end of the world. Swam back to the shore. A foot is certainly hurting, but because this is the Marine Corps and not the Air Force, I didn't whine about it. Didn't tell my buddies about it. Foot is really smarting. Not the end of the world. Go up, crash out. We got work the next day. Well, because it's the Marine Corps, the part of the work the next day involved a long run first thing in the morning. Not my favorite thing in the world. Nevertheless, off we go. And while I certainly don't run like a gazelle, and I was the most below average Marine in history, I also wasn't dropping out of runs all the time. I just didn't want to look like a little girl. So I would keep up. I'd be dying, but I would keep up. Only this time, I'm having trouble keeping up. My foot is hurting bad. It feels like I am running, surprise, surprise, on a needle on my left foot. Now, you have a doc in the Marine Corps. He's actually in the Navy, but he they, they train him as a corpsman. We don't have our own medics. The Navy gives us a corpsman, and he has to come train with the infantry Marines. Corpsmen are basically Marines. They're studs. You love your doc. He takes good care of you. Doc sees me struggling. I'll explain in a second. Doc takes a look at my foot because he tells me, Jesse, just, just sit down on the ground. Dude. No, they'll be fine. They'll, they'll go on without you. Just sit down on the ground. What's, what's happening here? And I tell him, Doc, I don't know. And there is a chance. I am not saying this happened, mainly because my mother listens to the show. There is a chance the previous day when I put my foot down on the coral that somebody had overserved me. Before I put my foot down on the coral, maybe I was roofied. Maybe somebody forced me. Maybe I had a little bit too much to drink. Which brings me to Doc pulling me over to the side of the road and asking me, Jesse, what do you mean your foot hurts? And I'm like, it's killing me. And he says, why? And I said, I don't have any idea. I don't remember doing anything to it. At the time, I did not. Has me pull off my shoe right there in the middle of the road, and he says, Um, this is not good. This is not good at all. He leaves me with someone to watch out for me and runs back and grabs his bag of goodies. And he comes back to see me, and this was the beginning of a 20-year struggle. I'm not exaggerating. Hang on.
Jesse Kelly returns next. This is The Jesse Kelly Show. Doc takes a look at my foot and says, uh-oh. Runs and grabs his little bag, comes back, and right there in the middle of the road, people driving by and everything. Again, it's a, not the, not the uh, ideal situation. Doc pulls out a razor blade. Not even any local anesthesia, that monster. And slices open the bottom of my foot. Grabs his tweezers. And you know how sensitive the bottom of your feet are. You're, you're, the bottom of your feet are sensitive for a reason. You know, they have those, uh, uh, what do they call those specialty foot massages, Chris? The reflexology or something like that. I forget what it is. It's some, it's, I, I think it's Chinese, actually. Or maybe it's Japanese. I don't know. I don't, I don't read. But it's something to do with the fact that all your nerve endings end in the bottom of your foot somewhere. And they think they can solve, I don't know. Look, I've never done it. It's not my, it's not my area. They think they can solve major body problems with just your feet. And there, uh, so much of torture out there is based on your feet. There are countries still, it sounds simple, but it's horrific. There are countries still that, I mean, how they torture you is they sit you down with your feet stretched out in front of you, barefoot, and they'll just take a stick and start whacking on the bottom of your foot. And it's horrific because all the nerve endings are down there. That's why it hurts so bad to stub your toe. It just your feet are sensitive. So he slices open the bottom of my foot, takes his tweezers, Starts digging around down there and pulls out a sea urchin needle about the length of your fingernail. Little thin needle, which he had obviously broken off inside of me. And he says, all right, well, I think you're good. They get me patched up, get back to the barracks. No worries, right? No worries. Saga over, day over. Except... Two, three years later, this is 05, 06, it starts hurting. And I mean, I hardly even remembered what had happened or why it happened, but all of a sudden I'm developing a callus around this area. It's on the front ball of my foot. You know how you have like that fat callus by the middle toe, Chris? And then you have the skinnier one on the other side of your foot by the little toe. You kind of have two points. You kind of have two points up there. Does that make sense? I had a third one in the middle. It was really gross. It was down by like the ring finger on the toe. And look, this is extremely disgusting, but it's Friday. So you could just sit there and take it. But I would have this callus around there and it would grow so big. And it would hurt so bad once it got so big. I would have to go down to the doctor, and he'd have to basically chop the freaking thing off. Every five, six months, I'd have to go down. And I just lived with this for 15, 20 years. I would limp around much of the time. If I would go out for a jog or something, not to brag, but I worked out once. If I would go out for a jog or something, I would oftentimes have to stop. 
Does my foot is just in that much pain? And because I'm a dude, it never really occurred to me that maybe I should seek out a medical solution for this problem. Maybe there's something legitimately wrong there. Until finally the wife is hounding on me and she's like, you got to get it checked out. You got to get it checked out. So I go down, I see this podiatrist. That's a foot doctor, Chris. I see this podiatrist and he says, well, here's your problem. The sea urchin needle they pulled out, it left a scar. And the scar is why the callus builds up and it presses on your nerves and that's why it hurts. And there's nothing I can do about it. If I were to do a surgery to remove the scar, the scar the surgery would leave would be worse than the scar you got now. And you'd just be in a pickle, so you just got to live with it. So I shrug my shoulders and move on. Another 10 years of my life. Finally, my buddy Michael Berry, great radio host, my mentor in this business, Michael Berry, he says one, he sees me limping around his house one night. We're hanging out. I'm hanging out with his fam. We're, we're, we're doing a bunch of stuff. And he says, he sees me limping around. He says, ask what, what I'm doing. And I say, man, I'm hurting again. And I tell him the story I just told you. So he lays me, he, he says, all right, lay down. I'm going to get the wife down here. He gets his wife down there. And they have me take off my shoe. And they're looking, and she is one of these brilliant ladies. You know, like me, just a brilliant person. And she says, I'm telling you, there's something in there. And they knew this specialty doctor here. Uh, in in Houston. We need to call him. And he's one of these fancy schmancy guys, Chris, where, I mean, Barry's nationally famous. He's one of these famous rich people. So he knows all the fancy doctors. And this guy only deals with, no joke, Hollywood actors and all the sports stars down here, like everybody for the Rockets that needs, they go to this guy. He doesn't, you don't just walk in and be like, hey, I want to see this guy. No, 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 no. I don't even know if he's listed. He's one of those guys. And somebody I would never qualify to see, and somebody I could never afford to see. <laughs> but he owed he owed Barry a favor, and he was super big on veterans. And Barry, of course, lies to him and tells him it's a war wound. I'm like, like Michael, it's not a war wound. You don't have to lie to the freaking guy. I was half I was half boozed up on the coral. Okay, it was really not a war wound. I wasn't dodging sniper fire when I stepped on a sea urge. And nevertheless, guy agrees to take me in for the for the for the appointment. He gets me in, he sits me down, puts on, you know, his dock goggles and all these other things, and he's looking at it, and he does that thing. It was it, Honestly, it was like that episode of Seinfeld, if you've ever seen it. He puts my foot down and starts popping his head out into the hall to call in all the physician's assistants and nurses to look at the bottom of my foot. No, 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 you got to see. No, you can get with that guy in a second. You got to come see this. You got, hey, you got to say, hey, go get Sarah. Uh, And soon I have eight people surrounding my bed with my foot hanging out. And he holds them up. And keep in mind, he's still, he's just one of those guys. We all know an eccentric guy like that. They're usually the most brilliant. He's not even telling me what's wrong. And he's holding my foot up to them. He's saying, hey, do you see? Have you ever seen anything like that before? Isn't that crazy? And I'm like, uh, excuse me. Am I going to die? What? Do you have to cut it off to to help me, Doc? What's wrong? And he fesses up. He says, you have something in your foot. 
And I said, I'm, I'm sorry? He said, there is something inside of your foot. And I, I told him, I was, well, I went to a podiatrist, Doc, and he said, it's a scar. And he said, no, 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 no. Whatever that doctor told you was completely wrong. Whatever this is, is not a scar. You have something inside your foot, and I need to get it out. Now. So, uh, all right, well, let's do it, Doc. That's what we're here for. And he says, do you want anesthesia or not? To which, I, w- of course, I would answer the same thing anyone else would. Uh, yeah, please give me all the drugs, Doc. I don't want to feel a thing. Just make me Keith Richards for the day. That's fine. And he said, well, I should clarify, it's the bottom of your foot. There's a chance the anesthesia is actually going to hurt worse than what I have to do because I have to jam a needle into the nerves in the bottom of your foot. And now I'm laying there. And, and I have. To, what am I supposed to do with this information, Chris? What are you supposed to do? With this? And, of course, because I'm a dude and there are hot nurses around, it's a fancy, rich, rich no, doctor's office. I'm like, wow, I don't need the anesthesia, doc. I'll be fine. And he's, well, are you sure? Because this is going to hurt. I'm like, oh, I'll be fine. You know what, doc? Do what you got to do. I've seen enough John Wayne movies. I'm a Marine. And on the inside, I'm thinking, please don't let me die. Hang on, I'm not done. Miss something? There's a podcast. Get it on demand wherever podcasts are found. The Jesse Kelly Show. Now... He takes the razor blade, and he tells me, because I remember, I decided no anesthesia. And he tells me, okay, this is going to hurt. So he gets a couple nurses around me, and they hand me these balls. I have a ball in each hand. Stop, Chris. Stop. Now. I have a ball in each hand, and they're these super squishy balls. You know, like the like st- stress relievers. Stress relievers. And he said, well, if you just squeeze these, it'll be fine. I said, just just do what you got to do, Doc. And more than anything else, I mean, most of your life is like this when you're a dude. I just don't want to look like a big sissy. So I don't tell anything. I don't say anything. I don't make a noise. He starts carving out a hole. In the bottom of my, and I can't describe it better than that. Picture a hole about the size of a dime. It was about that round. And he would carve into the bottom of my foot. And he's down there with his tweezers and everything else. And God bless him. He's picking out pieces of the sea urchin needle that had been left in my foot for 20 years. And everybody's watching. And finally, he gets this other nurse to come in because he thinks I'm hurting. And, of course, I'm dying. 
and he's asking me how bad I'm hurting. I'm like, just do what you got to do, Doc. I hardly feel anything. And I'm, I'm, I think I'm starting to sweat at this point in time. It hurts bad, really bad. And he's pulling out these needles, and he's setting them down. And he brings in another nurse to come up to me. It was the strangest thing. In my shin area, she would gently tap on my shin. And finally, I said, excuse me, what are you doing? She said, oh, it helps. It's a mental thing. It helps take take your mind off the pain of the foot. Uh, of the foot. And I said, it's really not working at all. You don't. Please don't. Just go away. Don't do this. And he asks again if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm hurting at all. He said, is this too much pain? And I said, doc, don't worry about it. Honestly, I'm fine. And he said, uh, he pulls back and he looks at me. He said, are you really fine? I said, honestly, don't worry about it. And he gets up. And I'm like, oh, gosh, here we go. He pulls out the, what's it called, a stethoscope thing, Chris, where they, they, they hear your heartbeat? Throws the stethoscope little earpieces in, walks up to me, and plants that thing on my heart, and then gives me this look like, are you kidding me? Apparently, it was pounding. <laughs> Like, look, if I ask if you're fine, be honest that you're fine. Let's get you some drugs. And they found a way to drug me up, and he ended up carving out the sea urchin needles out of the bottom of my foot that had been there for 20 years. Now, this was a year and a half, two years ago, I would say, this took place. It's starting to hurt me again, Chris. And what I want to know, honestly, how could that happen? If it's been fine for this long, how could that happen? And the only thing I can come up with is, A, either he didn't get it all, which I have a very hard time believing. I mean, this dude was top-notch, and I'll be grateful for him forever. Either he didn't get it all, or I have nerve damage in my foot. And I bet you that's what it is. Surely there has to be some nerve damage after that much time. I mean, I didn't get my Ph.D. at community college, but who knows? So there. Foot hurts. And that's why. And I greatly apologize that I just took up an hour of your time to tell you that story. (laughs) It's Friday. We can't do the same thing all the time. Headline. ISIS prisoners complain their human rights aren't being respected. While America has released some prisoners over fears of coronavirus spreading in prison population... That hasn't been much of a concern for those running Syria's largest ISIS prison, which houses at least 5,000 former fighters. We know that the virus is at least on ISIS's radar as the terrorist group issued a travel warning to their fighters last month, cautioning them against pursuing targets in Europe over fears of the virus. No guidance was given as to whether or not there were exceptions for suicide bombers. That was a nice little... A little bit there. This is from Bongino, by the way. Bongino reports awesome. While it has yet to be confirmed, fears about the virus may have at least been a contributing factor to a prison riot. Okay. Time to once again be the bad guy, Chris. Why are they still alive? And I'm sure look, go ahead and go ahead and blow up the phones. Blow up my email. You can email me anytime, jesse at jessekellyshow.com. Again, it's jesse at jessekellyshow.com. It's fine. Yell, scream. Jesse wants to kill a bunch of people. It's ISIS. 
Has everybody already forgotten what these people did? What these people did to women and children? I'm not even just talking about the terrorist attacks. The things ISIS did. You know what's different between the ISIS guys and the Nazis of World War II? You know what separates them? Ability. And that's all. The ISIS guys and the things they did and the reasons they did them are every bit as evil as the Nazis in the Holocaust. They just lacked the money, the infrastructure, the know-how, the nation-state, and everything else the Nazis had to pull it off. ISIS would have done that and much worse. I don't know if you could do worse. They would have done that easily. They would have. 100%. That's reality. And what I'm confused about, Chris, and then again, I know I'm going to sound like a monster here. Have we changed that much as a world that we can't kill ISIS fighters? Those are people. I mean, look, we did it with the Nazis after World War II. They're called Nuremberg trials. I'm not saying you line them all up Syrian style and pull their fingernails out and dump them in a ditch. I'm not, I'm honestly, I'm not saying that. I'm not advocating for a massive human rights violation. But if you're in ISIS, why are there still 5,000 of them in jail to complain at all? Why can we not set up some kind of a system? Explain it to me. Why can these guys not go through an expedited trial where evidence is presented just like Nuremberg? Here's why you did what you did. Okay, you're found guilty. Guess what? I've got a rope and gallows out back. I, 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 I'm not trying to come across as a barbarian. I'm not. Why are they still alive? And this is from somebody. I should clarify. I waver back and forth on the death penalty all the time. Because politicians are so idiotic and because these stories will come out about somebody who had been wrongfully executed. And I think how horrific that is for his family. I'm just mortified by it. Mortified by it. Why are we keeping alive the evilest people? Is evilest the word, Chris? Most evil? I'm going to say evilist. I understand it's most evil. I like evilist better. I can say whatever I want. Why are we keeping alive the evilest people who've ever lived? I don't know. Have have we lost who we are as a world? Is there some plan to reintegrate them back into society? Tell me. I need to know. I need to know what the plan is. All right. Jesse Kelly Show.
You know who we need to hear from right now, Chris? Somebody from Tennessee. That's who we need to hear from. So joining me now is the White House correspondent for Newsmax, Emerald Robinson. Emerald, do you ever miss Tennessee now that you live in D.C. and it sucks there? I mean, people are just different. You know this. You live in Texas. They're friendly. (laughs) You walk into a store. They talk to you. Just like even if they don't know you, they talk to you like they've known you forever, tell you about their kids. I miss that. I miss that friendliness. It's, it's not quite like that in D.C., as it, you know. I do know. That's what, You know what's funny? is That's the reason we moved. I swear, it's like the main reason we moved because yeah. we had the kids, and, and nobody even holds open doors for people. No one says thank you. No one, <laughs> no. No, no one waves on the way by. Everyone's so freaking rude. Why? I, I know. And you know what I love, though? My kid has been born and raised at this point here. He's three. Mm-hmm. But he is so friendly he always tells me mommy i'm a country boy and he talks to everybody he sees and so i hope he maintains that while we live here you and know maybe one day we'll escape too like you jesse maybe you, you will <laughs> one day you're going to escape there and you know what's funny is i prefer the politeness and yet i'll still have these moments if i'm in tennessee i mean shoot i have them in texas all the time anytime i'm traveling through the south where I'll get slightly annoyed because you're in the gas station line trying to buy a bottle of water, and the person in front of you will just talk to the cashier for 10 minutes without a care in the world. I know, but it's so true, and I try not to get aggravated because clearly, like, when I go back home, I'm still on D.C. time. (laughs) I'm the same way, and I try not to be one of those D.C. people. I'm like, oh, my gosh, it has rubbed off on me. (laughs) All right, time for the task at hand. Emerald? Yeah. We obviously everybody knows this is China's fault. That's not that's not news. They they lied about everything. China's garbage. I yeah. am a very cynical person. You are a much better and sunnier person than I am. And I worry <laughs> that at the end of this whole thing, we are going to do pretty much nothing to China. Everybody's talking tough now. Everybody's mad. Well, we're going to come down on them. And I think at the end of yeah. this, everybody is going to look at those cheap Chinese goods and say, you know mm-hmm. what? It wasn't their fault. Yeah, well, isn't that the million-dollar question? But I'll tell you, there's many more people asking that question now. Think back a few months ago. Think back a year ago. I have been warning about China for some time now and got a lot of pushback on it. And then this crisis really showed how dependent we are on them. And I'll often use more colorful language that I won't use (laughs) on the radio, Jesse. It's definitely (laughs) Tennesseeism. But it just showed how much control they had over our supply, specifically the medical supply. So you're seeing much more support for holding China's feet to the fire, and you're seeing more reporters ask questions. Now, we'll get to the reporter aspect just a little later, because clearly there's a lot of Chinese influence in American media. But um, I will tell you that right now, White House advisor Peter Navarro, who is a China hawk, does strongly have the president's ear because he has been right about a lot of this, even over the president's uh, quote-unquote, medical experts um, regarding the coronavirus. And I've, I've spoken with Navarro a lot about what they plan to do. Now, that this is they do plan to punish China by supply chains. That's how they're feeling right now. 
But they can't go out there and explicitly say that. So you see the president talking a lot, praising President Xi. I mean, China still kind of has us, you know, by the you know what. So we have to play nice right now until they can address this. But from what Navarro and some of the other White House aides have told me, the president is really, really upset about how China did us with this. And that as soon as we can come through this and get to a better place, he's really going to hold China's feet to the fire and the WHO, who has facilitated China's deception. What does that mean as far as holding their feet to the fire? Like, how do we do that, Emerald? Are we are we pointing our fingers at our corporations and saying, hey, you will come back home? Are we putting tariffs on China? Are we are we are we are we dropping a nuclear bomb on Shanghai? What are we doing? Well, I mean, it does sort of feel like we're at war with China, right? Mm-hmm. Well, there's there's those like Navarro who want to be harder on them in the White House. And that's totally cut off, you know, get our companies to come back, cut the supply chains not just on China, but even other countries. Um, and then there's, there are those who want to go the more capitalistic route of it, saying tax incentives. So one thing that Larry Kudlow told me is that a plan that's floating around the White House is to do tax incentives for companies to move back their manufacturing to the United States that would involve 100% immediate write-off for um, building structures, moving costs, equipment, and that would absorb the cost of relocating back to the United States. But again, there almost has to be the fear tactic in it than just the incentive, because we've seen that companies tend to find a way around Mm -hmm. the incentive. And in some ways, I think it's for the American people to hold corporations accountable as well. Do you no have faith that we can do that, though? Because that's that's that, I, again, I hate being the cynical one, but that's just who I am. I, I, no, but the, it's really hard. Yeah, corporations—they all hold up a profit loss sheet, and they all see that yep. labor is the biggest black mark on there. All of them, and you can cut those costs down to nothing when you ship it to China for slave yep. labor. And it's hard—it's hard to appeal to their patriotism when you're doing that. That's true. But it's not just the corporation aspect. So you got to look at how much China has infiltrated uh, American academics, American universities, how much it's infiltrated, infiltrated our media in order to push out their messaging that they're not so bad. So China is something, it's, it is one of our biggest threats. Clearly, this coronavirus exemplified it. The president talked about it in some of his State of the Union speeches and uh, some of his larger addresses over the last couple of years. And I don't think people really realized how aggressive China was coming on the United States or how ill will, how much ill will China actually wishes for the United States until now. And they kind of get the picture a little bit more. But the China issue is one that is not going away. China is hanging, trying to hang on to its influence in the United States as much as possible. And it'll be interesting to see if this administration will really push on China once this is gone. I mean, the president has been pretty tough on tariffs, but there's a lot more that can be done. And I think if Navarro had his way, there would be a lot more done. Donald Trump's reelection. I'm just saying that we need to start with not letting them in the White House briefing room, right? Oh, yes. doing- that would be a very nice start. It would be a dang nice start if we could I not allow. I one, you know, on Wednesday. Uh, I, I, and the, the, 
the guy that said he was from Taiwan. And so we're now doing these coronavirus tests before we have to go. We can go into the briefings. We have to get tested for uh, the coronavirus. I'm saying maybe we should start testing for CCP mm-hmm. and looking at where people are coming from, right? <laughs> Wait, Emerald, did you have to get that big Q-tip stuffed up your nose? <laughs> I haven't done it yet. They started that yesterday. Oh. So I was in Wednesday briefing. We're on a rotation. Okay. And then right. they started that I'm... yesterday. I'm looking really forward to that, though. <laughs> All right. We are, we, are, we are done. We're coming up against the break. We are getting Emerald back on next week, Chris, because we have to find out about the glory of the coronavirus test. Thank you, Emerald Robinson. You're the best. Thanks, Jesse. I don't want anything up my nose, Chris. I mean, unless it's from Columbia. Jesse Kelly. You know the best part of being nationally syndicated? I mean, I love I loved just doing Houston, too, because I love Houston. I mean, Texas is so great. But the best part of being nationally syndicated is we get to be more formal on the air. It's You know how wild everybody said the show was and we always got in trouble? Well, now we get to be more formal. Mitchell, hold on. Before you leave, before you leave, I want the sourdough jack meal no ketchup no tomatoes on the burger i'm not kidding if it comes back with ketchup and tomatoes you're going right back sourdough jack meal no ketchup no tomatoes i want it large we're not women curly fries dr pepper chris no no coke doesn't a coke sound good every now and then chris wait wait mitchell i'm not done i'm not done I need a small order of the uh, uh, the jalapeno poppers, and this is absolutely critical. I cannot emphasize this enough. I need ranch dressings, and do not come back here with one ranch dressing. I need more than one ranch because I need them for the curlies, and I need them for the jalapeno poppers. One last thing, and you're going to have to use your own ingenuity here. I'm like General Patton where you don't tell someone how to do something, you tell them what needs done and let them surprise you with your ingenuity, I need something sweet. Jack in the Box will generally pull out some kind of cool dessert. Don't freaking walk back over here with cheesecake. Anything with cheesecake. Get us something sweet. Anyway, let's get back to the show, Chris. Um, it should be noted that it is Good Friday today. We are not going to finish a show because we are not godless savages, without bringing up Good Friday and the fact that Jewish producer Chris's people killed Jesus. In all seriousness, it is Good Friday. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your sacrifice. You all have a good day today because it is Good Friday. It's a day to pray and honor Jesus. Not that Chris would know anything about that. Also, before I forget, see... I've been lectured endlessly since we started this thing. And I refuse to change because I don't learn lessons. I've been lectured that I don't do any of the normal things that you're supposed to do in radio. You are supposed to 
as soon as a segment opens. You're done. Today on the Jesse Kelly Show, we're going to have this guest so-and-so. And then later on, we're going to be discussing the uh, the uh, tax incentives of the coronavirus. And then after that, we will be talking about ISIS and how we should shoot them all in the face. And, uh, and I understand that's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to do these teases. I'm supposed to give out the website a lot. You're supposed to do all these like setups for the next day. I don't do any of those things. Nobody ever taught me to do any of those things. I have no formal training. I didn't grow up in radio. They turn on the mic and I talk. And plus, I can't tease what we're going to talk about during the show. I mean, you might as well stop yelling at me. I know all the corporate people are listening. I can't tease what we're going to talk about on the show when I don't know what we're going to talk about on the show once the show begins. I don't know. I talked for an hour today about a sea urchin that was stuck in my foot. I don't understand. So from now on, I'm going to attempt to be better about that. So let me just say this. We had a fun week. You're going to want to catch all of every show because, as you can probably tell, we mix it up a lot. You don't need to be beaten over the face with coronavirus, this, in economy, that. 24 hours a day, you can get that anywhere, on any channel. On the radio, on TV, uh, that's all there is right now. It's the end of the world. So I'm not going to do it all day, every day. I can't. But the podcasts are all available. The whole show. Right there on your smartphone. Easiest thing in the world. They're available on Google, on Spotify. They're all available on Apple. And maybe the easiest way to get your podcast for the mo- for most of you, they're on iHeart. Go to iHeart. Download the iHeart Radio app. It's all free. They don't charge for that, do they, Chris? It's all free. Yeah, I knew it. They don't even charge for it. Download the download the iHeart Radio app. They're all free. I'm almost positive you can even set it up where they automatically download. And even if you can't, there's probably a special Jesse Kelly button where they just know you're going to want to automatically download it. You know what kind of weirds me out, though, Chris? And I think about this stuff sometimes. You know I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. I think about this. We can track where the downloads come from. No, not your individual cell phones or anything like that. They just can general areas. Like, they know cities. Well, this many people in Sheboygan and this many people in D.C. and this many people. And it's all the same downloads you'd think. But we have some from Russia. I'm not making that up. Who's listening to the Jesse Kelly show in Russia? We have, I'm almost positive, Chris told me, we have a guy in Kazakhstan, don't we? Like more than one, I think. We have somebody in Kazakhstan. What? Austria. Really? I mean, who in Austria is doing? Austria is sweet. If you've never seen Austria, you've seen, uh, Christian. even you've probably seen the movie uh, The Sound of Music. I know. Look, I know the movie sucks. I wasn't pitching for the movie. Don't look at me like that. The Sound of Music was filmed there. So all those beautiful mountains and meadows and all that stuff. I went to Austria. It's the only time I've ever been to Europe. And it was sweet. But the food kind of sucks. It's not processed enough. Hang on.
now have dissension. We have dissension in the ranks with the staff. As everybody heard, I'm sending Mitchell. He's the one who, he's our uh, our personal assistant around here. He handles the phone calls, his personal assistant. He takes care of important stuff for us, like Jack in the Box. And we have given him our Jack in the Box orders. He is on the way. We'd have dissension, though, and Chris is ordering the loaded tacos again. Remember, I ordered the loaded tacos the other day. I said they were way overrated. Chris said it's because I didn't get the loaded ones because the loaded ones come with sauce. Chris, I'm going to have to steal one or two of yours. That's all there is to it. So last night, my sons, they have, they have these fish we got them. They're betas, beta fish, whatever. It's like, whatever. I told you my oldest has that allergy to, to uh, pet hair, and they wanted something. We wanted to teach them responsibility. Like, it's really backbreaking taking care of a fish. But So we got him a couple fish, and I sat them down, Chris. It was the best. And I told him that we had to kill one of their fish for, for Passover and sacrifice it and spread it over the door. <laughs> I'll quit, everybody, quit. My kids have lived with me now for 9 and 11 years. Do you think they actually believed me? This is the problem. I have so mentally abused them for so long. They kept laughing as I was trying to keep a straight face and they didn't keep me they they didn't believe me at all. That's not true. You would never. I'm like, "No, I'm son, look. This is what the Lord wants." So, y'all can draw straws and figure out which fish has to go, but don't we ha- don't we owe him a sacrifice? And they didn't buy it at all. I thought I had him for a second, but I've so jaded them. It sucks. All right. Y'all enjoy your weekend. Enjoy your Easter. He is risen. You can write me emails, jesse at jessekellyshow.com. That's jesse at jessekellyshow.com. That's all. Jesse Kelly Show. You don't have to dip forever. You know that, right? You don't have to smoke forever. And the reason I say it like that is I have been that guy. I, I've been that guy. I dipped for so long. And what would happen is I would decide I'm going to quit. Oh, that's bad for me. I'm going to quit. I'm a man. I don't need any help. I'm just going to quit cold turkey. And I would fail time and time and time again. I tried things like the patch. That didn't work. Gum sunflower seeds. I I tried it all. It's just a matter of finding the right thing to help you quit. That's Jake's Mint Chew. Go, put in your dip. Just make sure it's Jake's Mint Chew. It's tobacco-free. It's nicotine-free. It's even sugar-free. And I highly recommend, just a personal choice, I highly recommend their CBD pouches because it really helps take that extra edge off. Get a jakesmintchew.com. That's jakesmintchew.com. Chew.com. Make sure you use the promo code JESSE at checkout. When you do that, you get 10% off. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. 
I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. More Than a Movie is back with Season 2. I'm your host, Alex Fumero. And each week, I'm going to talk to the people behind your favorite movies. From The Godfather, Andy Garcia. He has the smarts of Vito, the temper of Sonny, the warmth of Fredo, and the coldness of Michael. To the legend behind La Bamba, Lou Diamond Phillips. When I walked in, I didn't think I had a shot at Richie because John Stamos' picture was already up on the wall. Listen to more than a movie on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's, Rappaport's Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.